this is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This week, I spoke to a couple of folks who are part of the Libertarian Socialist Caucus of the Democratic Socialists of America. All right, so what is the Libertarian Socialist Caucus? It's not what you think. <laughs> um, so when you first hear the word libertarian, uh, socialist, a um, lot of people think Tea Party and um, more right-wing beliefs. And that's not what it was. That's not what it is at all. So the name libertarian is actually sort of co-opted by that particular belief. The name libertarian comes from France, uh, from the anarchist movement. From um, Proudhon, I believe. Yeah. So so sorry. So Proudhon. Yeah. So Proudhon, uh, the the um, was a really big original anarchist, as you know, um, and he was uh, he was kind of the one who coined the term. Uh, um, anarchy, the mother, uh, the mother of order, um, and so that's kind of where the anarchy symbol, the A and the O, comes from. Uh, a lot of people don't actually realize that there is an O in the anarchy symbol, <laughs> and it means order. Huh. <laughs> um, but the Libertarian Socialist Caucus specifically is a uh, kind of self-organized group within the Democratic Socialists of America, and particularly this was a group that was among many caucuses and working groups that met during the uh, DSA National Convention in Chicago this summer. And you were there? To the, did you go to Chicago, both of you? Yes, went to Chicago and loved it. Mm -hmm. It was great. So, Libertarian Socialist comes from the anarchist movement, is an anarchist. So I like to say, like, DSA, that kind of organization is very multi-tendency. And within libertarian socialism, there is also um, an element of multi-tendency as well. So we have people who will openly identify as anarchists. Um, we have people who believe or who um, are into communalism communism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism, yes. municipalism. Pretty much in the grid when you see the big grid, uh, the lower left quadrant. As a, as or, a caucus. As a caucus, yeah. Yes. But a big tent within that. Right. The idea of an anarchist caucus mm -hmm. is like bending my mind just mm -hmm. a little bit in mm -hmm. funny ways. Right, <laughs> so I know, I know. Because you're speaking about working within the electoral system. So, uh, within... Yeah, so within... Within um, the DSA system specifically. Right. So what that meant um, with regards to the DSA was a radical collaboration and radical transparency to kind of make that pull of DSA leftward. It was, um, it was basically, it was a grouping of the delegates. So all the delegates, like all 800 of us that went to Chicago this, for this convention, um, we all organized in different caucuses like there was a southern caucus there were there was a fa socialist feminist working group there was an uh, environmental justice caucus and then there was the libertarian socialist caucus which was basically the group of delegates that organized around the principles of basically freedom democracy and solidarity and the big focus that really unified all of us is our commitment to decentralized direct democracy and sort of the all power to the locals mentality rather than the sort of uh, democratic centralism that you see in more Marxist-Leninist flavors of leftism. 
So why is this part of the Democratic Socialists of America? It seems to me I'm not quite understanding the connection between having this group of this autonomous group mm-hmm. caucus within a framework of the Democratic Socialists mm-hmm. of America. How right? So Democratic Socialists are not a political party. They're a political organization, activist um, they, organization. Right. Yeah. So they make while they may take political actions and while they may take political stances, they're fundamentally not a party. Um, they're a big tent, and they're not uh, one to shy away of anyone who identifies left of center and will welcome those who want to be but don't know as much. What I actually find more about libertarian socialism is that it has a lot less to do with the theory. You will find when people start asking a lot about it in like left Twitter or online spaces, a lot of the responses you find are Google Murray Bookchin, and you think about municipalism, mm-hmm. right? Google and Murray Bookchin is a really popular meme right now. In so, Twitter. right, and it's a popular f- refrain because a lot of libertarian socialists are behind that movement or behind municipalism, right? Government at its smallest. But in order to do that, we s- it's helpful to have uh, a bigger framework and a bigger platform with which to do that. That's welcoming to us. So what does the DSA do? So the DSA right now um, has been heavily involved in anti-racism activism uh, in the last, well, since its inception, but most timely within the last weeks. Um, They've been working, they were there in Charlottesville, they've been at uh, anti-racist rallies, Mm -hmm. counter-protests in Portland, in Seattle, etc., So that's an important cornerstone for DSA. Another one at our more local level, for instance, we're into more locally uh, working with groups to sort of deconstruct neoliberalism in Lane Community College, Uh, try and break down those barriers. One thing that we really feel strongly about in our chapter is that no one should ever be turned away. No, anyone can come, uh, despite money, socioeconomic status, what, whatever, whatever they may have. There's a place for everyone, and we can do it if we're working together. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea, instead of the disenchantment with the po- traditional political machine. So I, uh, I guess the way I would answer your question is kind of the the elevator pitch that I usually give about the DSA is the Democratic Socialists of America are a nationwide activist organization devoted to expanding democracy in all facets of society, including but not limited to the the economy, the workplace, and the government. So what mechanisms do you use to make these changes? So at our chapter, and my kind of vision for all of this, really brings in the idea of radical collaboration. If you have an idea, if there's something that you're good at, a skill, anything that you want to see happen, you just do it, yeah. right? So um, something that that we've done um, is starting the DSA DIY caucus, um, an individual group within DSA that looks, for, looks towards crafting, cooking, creating, homesteading, self-preservation, you know, all of those things that are traditionally maybe gender-rolled or, or uh, placed onto marginalized populations for labor, we should all be celebrating that because that work is work and labor, and it should be alongside of the rest of the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So 
one thing that we thought of, and this all happened just like one night on Twitter, we just collaborated and did it, was thinking of making a collaborative quilt with all of the chapters, coming together and doing that and showing the individual, the individuality within like the whole, um, making a community cookbook, learning, helping chapters learning to make their own swag instead of relying on corporations to provide that sort of thing. One, one example of that actually is um, there was one comrade who was actually a part of the, the uh, Libertarian Socialist Caucus that crocheted a bunch of roses and like a lot of those roses were just plain red you know because mm-hmm. the rose is an uh, international symbol of socialism and it's the official symbol of the DSA and also some of the roses were uh, half black half red for that uh, Libertarian Socialist twist on it and what she did was, uh, what, what they did was they made all these roses, uh, crocheted them, and glued a pin to it, and voila, you have a pin that you can wear on your, per- on your t-shirt. And these roses, I, I looked at the crochet pattern for it, they are really, really easy to make. Craft night for our chapters where we can teach our members how to do this ourselves, and so this is a way that we can... You know, spread this merchandise, uh, participate in something together, and also raise revenue for our chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you do you do electoral politics? No. D- well, DSA it's a local choice, local autonomy on whether you want to participate in local elect or in any electoral politics. We made in- local endorsements as a chapter, but we're DSA is not a party, so they don't. They may run DSA members, but. There's certainly not the infrastructure for that. At the convention this year, we actually passed this big document called the Priorities Resolution, which highlighted the three main priorities of the DSA, um, of the kind of organizing that DSA chapters will be participating in and on, and what DSA will be doing on a national level for the next two years. So those three main priorities are socialized medicine, labor justice, and electoral politics. So in, in that electoral politics... When we talk about electoral politics from the point of view of democratic socialist organizing, we're not talking about throwing all of our energy behind a presidential campaign. No, we're, we are really focused on local races, making sure that social, open socialists are getting into local public office positions, such as uh, city council. There are several, several socialists running for city council in Seattle, in Chicago, in New York, and... So uh, local chapters actually have full autonomy to endorse whoever we want, regardless of if they're an open socialist. So, for example, if you're a chapter in Kansas where you know for a fact that no socialist will, no open socialist will win any any position of office in your area, so they can totally endorse uh, a progressive candidate that will still be able to champion those ideas in the you know the political language of that local community. However, if a local chapter wants to get their candidate endorsed by the national DSA, they have to meet certain requirements, among which they do have to be an open socialist and running as one. They have to uh, be in it to win it and not just be a protest candidate, and they have to be endorsed by the local chapters. So for me, socialist and libertarian socialist are very different, despite both having socialist in the word... Like socialist, so helping socialists get into office as a libertarian socialist is an interesting thing for me because socialism sort of like big government 
And then libertarian socialism is understanding the word socialism as in taking care of the community by the community, right? So, yeah. so I think an important aspect of, of the work that we do is that it's from a framework of bottoms up. So while we recognize that it is, it can be strategically beneficial to have a nationwide network of these small communities to work together, all of the decisions, all of the work that we do is based the very smallest level. So things that we can do like change rules, change committee rules to make them more fair and democratic, if you're not interested in working in the electoral system at all, that doesn't have to happen because we are a big tendon or a big tent, multi-tendency organization. But we look very closely at the local level, at our library commissioners, what their role is, what powers extend to our government, how can we make sure that those powers are held in check. Um, make sure that those powers are meant to help working class people or marginalized people um, or everyday citizens, everyone, which is still kind of important, an important aspect of what we do. Mm-hmm. Libertarian socialists can be of all sorts of different tendencies. One of the things that has brought a lot of people together is healthcare, and understanding how um, money has infected the way that healthcare decisions are made, and to try and untangle that from taking care of each other. Yeah, something I really want to stress. So you asked previously, what are the sort of act, what are the sort of things that the DSA does in order to achieve you know the goals that we have. The big focus is on what we call transformative reforms. That's reforms not just for the sake of reforming the system that's already in place, but reforms that would result in a real transfer of power from the capitalist class to the working and poor people. So an example of this would be, you know, if we have, if we transformed our healthcare system to be either a single payer or some other kind of socialized healthcare system rather than be controlled by the capitalist interest. So what that would do is that would directly take the power over the healthcare system that we have away from the capitalist class and it would essentially democratize it. So those are the kinds of reforms that we fight for. So healthcare was one thing that was on the priorities resolution and also labor. Uh, So you mentioned that for for you, one of the differences be- between socialist and libertarian socialists is that socialists basically want it to be controlled by government. Is that kind of what I got? Still within a governmental framework. Right. An overarching government, yeah. Okay. As opposed to directly by people. Right. So in the DSA, we operate under a slightly different de- definition of what socialism is. To us, socialism basically means a democratic economy. So, like, the textbook definition is, you know, socialism is an economic system in which the means of production are collectively owned rather than privately. And so for us, what that means is you have workplace democracy. Right, so workplace democracy, but then there's still sort of large-scale governmental bureaucracy for, like, so, like, within a nation-state system, so, like, the USA as a nation-state has a governmental body on a federal scale, right? And um, the so uh, that 
state which you describe as it is right now, it serves um, to protect property rights. And so it is it essentially the state as it exists right now is fueled by capitalism and it's just capitalism. So the idea behind a lot of socialist thought as it is currently and from the point of view of the democratic socialists of America is that if you fund change that fundamental relationship between employer and employee, if you democratize the enterprise, then that will translate into a democratization in the other forms of society, namely the government. When we talk about democratic socialism, when we talk about our fight for socialism, we are not just talking about democratizing the enterprise and then leaving the government to be uh, just as hierarchical and dictatorial as it is. We're saying we democratize that as well. For us as libertarian socialists, we are socialists, but with an added commitment to being against hierarchies and prioritizing that horizontal power structure. So anarchists are generally deeply anti-statist. Right. And one of the reasons for that is because it's not possible to democratize a state because the state system, just the existence yes. of a state system requires... It's the idea is that it's over other people. It's a yeah. system that exists over other people, not run by other people. Totally. And it's deeply I... entwined with capitalism, and they're not actually separable. They're within the DNA of each other. So if you're going to take down capitalism, you have to also take down the state. And I think that's a big reason why DSA is not a political party. Exactly. Because we don't have to work within that framework. Some people within our lifetime right now are working within it. And I think that that's a reality of life. There are people who are choosing to make that difference now, and I don't think that they should be excluded. Yeah. But I think that, that thinking big picture on that level, that's not really for me. What I consider most fundamental to what DSA does is helping our everyday lives. Absolutely. And that's where we don't need a party. We need mutual aid societies. We need to bring back the idea of auxiliaries that aren't gendered this time. Um, (laughs) You know, something I'm thinking about and I'm bringing up the DIY caucus again is that we can be crafty and helpful together Mm -hmm. and we can do that work together. But there are times when we take actions and have direct actions and we go as a group and we are maybe protecting a cause that we believe in or protecting people that we believe in. Mm -hmm. The DIY caucus then could switch into that auxiliary mode and be the kind of point people at direct actions that have first aid experience, that have CPR experience, that have um, that know where to get food, that know where to get water, that make sure you're hot or you're cold or you're hungry or you're fed or you're maybe you need a juice box Mm because you're cranky. You know, all of those things that typically we just left by the wayside as women's work or lesser than work. Um, that's crucially missed right now because we've relied so much on a hierarchical corporate system Mm -hmm. that assumes that money fixes all our problems. But I think a lot about the ethics of care of uh, someone like Virginia Held, who, again, another example of patriarchy, why was she even like placed into women feminist philosophy when she was an ethicist, right? She was an great feminist though and I applaud her very dearly but I think about Virginia Howell and I'm like okay we think about and we care naturally about those who are closest to us 
and having an organ a local organization that respects that and recognizes that and wants to become a society a place where you learn to do that right um where you learn how to form amongst yourselves if you're someone who doesn't know how to do that but all of those things used to exist in our society and i'm not old enough to you know I, I had those things as a very small child. Those still existed in the early 80s. Um, they were very dying away at that time, but we had it, and those, those things can come back. And whether you want to be someone who focuses uh, nationally, you, at the end of the day, still need to eat and be fed, and you're hungry, and you can be rest assured that your organization, the organization that you're part of, still holds those ideologies when you're at home too. Yeah. Listening to you both talk, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I was just going uh, I was just going to answer that by uh, just talking about my personal commitment in my DSA work to community organizing. I mean, what what you were describing about the state is absolutely correct. And so I think Catherine, one of the previous conversations we've had, we talked about how there's two types of revolutions one which power is directly seized from an institution and one in which that institution is made obsolete. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of work that I'm really focused on. Yes, we are yes we do as a national organization we do take part in electoral organizing, but really the focus is how do we transform our society to be directly democratic in a way that we can organize our society in in such a way as to meet our own needs and to make the state obsolete. An example of that, and an example of working towards that at the same time as working towards one of those transformative reforms I was talking about, is what the East Bay DSA chapter has been doing in uh, California. What they did, they um, set up a canvassing campaign for the single-payer healthcare bill that went through the, the California Senate. And what they did is they went to their own neighborhoods, not to strategic neighborhoods that historically vote this or that way, but to their own neighborhoods, and they talked to their neighbors about their healthcare. And it was more of kind of more of a, a listening exercise than, uh, than a speaking exercise. It was, it, they did it not to collect so many signatures, but to establish connections within their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. you know, the, kind, the kinds of connections that have kind of been lost in the recent decades, you know, the trope of going to your neighbor to borrow a cup of sugar, that kind of thing. But also to create this network of solidarity within our own community mm-hmm. um, around these transformative reforms, reforming campaigns to really make life better for people in our community. And that's really what the focus of our, uh, of our work is, I think. So what I'm hearing when I'm hearing you speak is that you're, you're, you haven't quite, it feels to me like you just haven't quite jumped all the way in mm-hmm. to creating, mm-hmm. to working on these like parallel power structures as opposed to working sort of within and existing. It's like DSA is sort of writing this line in between trying to like, save the existing system and while recognizing that it's pretty bad <laughs> and that like yeah. it's mm-hmm. not actually potentially savable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was mentioning, I was sort of describing our situation in the world right now to somebody using the metaphor of a car, 
that there's people, the neoliberals on top are saying, oh, you know, it's, there's a dent, you just bang out some dents, like change the oil, it'll be just fine. And then you've got people, one wrong kind of under that being like, well, I don't know, like all the windows are broken out, the radios got stolen, like the tires are slashed, like, this is going to take more work. And then you've got people, which is sort of where I'm starting to see Demsocks being is like, I think that we need a new transmission. I'm starting to really worry about the resale value here. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know if this mm-hmm. is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we anarchists are saying, um, it's on fire and we need to like get the fuck out before it explodes. Mm-hmm. So we need to come up with something, some <laughs> other mode of be, transportation yeah. for life, right? right? Like, we're, like, we need to get out. Right. So, like, I'm but sort of right. seeing, I'm sort of seeing Dem Sox is like but halfway it, out the car and we're saying, come I on over, y'all. Like, come yeah. on over. But, yeah. it's, but, it's, but here's the thing for me. It's, we need to, tra- we need to get out of this car and go into a better mode of transportation, but make sure that we don't get, that we don't, you know, fall and die during the transition process. Like we need to make sure that we, we need to make sure that in the transition process, uh, we don't have, um, you know, people getting hurt. We, we still need to take care of our communities Mm -hmm. while at the same time building these infrastructure, uh, I think part of the idea Um, is that, so, so in the car metaphor, right, the car's still moving, the car's going down the highway of life. Right. And we're in the car. You can't just turn off the car. Exactly. Right. We can, the car's still going to keep moving even if we turn it off. But so clearly we need a solution. So I, I, I think the Dem Sox are at the point there's uh, on one part, they're like, okay, we need a change. We got to do something. <laughs> the car's turned off. And then there's other people along that way, mm-hmm. all the way towards guys, I already knew that like six months ago. I've been working on this new form of transportation. You just got to hold up and hang with me and we got you, right? Because it's going to need that entire transition to get all of the people out of the car and into the new uh, transportation method and have it still running. So for me, what I think the safest way to make this transition right now is to Mm -hmm. really, really build up the parallel power structure to like Absolutely. take like mm-hmm. make this libertarian municipalism mm-hmm. movement really take off right and right i don't think you can we can't really do that half in half out i think mm-hmm. there's lots of people working mm-hmm. already in the electoral sphere mm-hmm. right Absolutely. Mm-hmm. i would i really i just see what you're describing as just basically libertarian municipalism mm-hmm. but i don't mm-hmm. know have you heard of the assemblies? Like, yes. So, you know, the Portland Assembly, yes. you know, the Neighborhood Action Councils in Seattle and all these things. Have you, mm-hmm. are DSA members working within them? Are you working, mm-hmm. are you interested in that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. So, like. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, um, at our convention, actually, in our Northwest, like, regional meeting, some Portland Assembly um, had a lot of paperwork there, had a lot of materials for us mm-hmm. um, yeah. to start working on we had, that. There was. There were a lot of pamphlets there. I uh-huh. took quite a few. Okay. <laughs> but um, kind of the idea is probably somewhere similar to that, depending on where you are and what your local situation yeah. is. Yeah. And that's where the, the kind of big tent comes into play. Mm-hmm. I think another important aspect of libertarian socialism has been sort of re-identifying what a digital community can be mm-hmm. um, and what digital closeness we have hmm. and resources that we can share amongst each other. Mm-hmm. So people who know 
parliamentary procedure, right? So we can go to our conventions and try and move DSA left. There's people online who can provide us training who are who are sympathetic to the libertarian socialist cause. Um, there are design people galore that want to help us make pamphlets, make materials, mm-hmm. uh, give us resources towards, oh, how can I get this printed? I don't mm-hmm. have an e-toner. What, what are other methods for me? Yeah. That for, for some people, for busy people, maybe socially anxious people, I speak from experience in saying those things because that's <laughs> me, the like busy, socially anxious person oh, that, I feel you. I feel you. that kind of <laughs> has formed my little niche, my little area, my nook online, right? And it's gone for so many years because I've had the internet for going on 20 years mm-hmm. that... At this point, it is kind of a little community. And there is that camaraderie when you find your digital community, your online community. Libertarian socialism brings that to online and within DSA, right? So we have our own little, um, our chat areas, uh, DSA sanctioned and not, where if we say, I need help with this, who can help me? Mm -hmm. Someone from across the nation can do that and help us help me if we have a question or a problem. And as long as it's something that I can either replicate in person or print out or learn about something I can do digitally, I don't see that as much of a difference from my neighbor and my next door neighbor, Mm -hmm. right? Because I care about all of them. And I love how libertarian socialism within DSA has enabled that and really pulled us introverts kind of yeah. out a little bit yeah. to work together, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's kind of hard and scary to be in the light, yeah. but we're, you know, out there doing it. Mm-hmm. Also, I just want to say that, like, in my view, the 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 kindest and friendliest people at the DSA convention were at the, were at the Libertarian Socialist Caucus. <laughs> like, it was, yeah, there, it was... It just said uh, the the best the absolute best times I had at the convention were there because everyone was just mm-hmm. on the same on the same page about like hey let's make this as uh, multi tenancy and as non hierarchical of a socialist organization as possible and mm-hmm. we're gonna build a better society together and it's gonna be great yeah totally yeah. we are we are a lot like that you know talking about these large networks of mutual aid and it sounds like the DSA is helping people kind of get into the into the process Mm -hmm. in a way so that's right so getting people from being lonely and out in the cold into the process at all Mm -hmm. and then sort of from more maybe more liberal within the dsa kind of pulling that into libertarian socialist caucus in the dsa Mm -hmm. and then so would you consider yourselves helping radicalize people absolutely so so. uh the general assembly um, (laughs) at dsa started with uh, 20, 30 people. But at the end, you know, we had talked to a lot of people by then <laughs> about what we believe, what we think. And by the end, we had uh, doubled, almost tripled in size yeah. um, people interested from across the country who think like, gee, I've been living this way sort of my whole life. And this is the way I would really prefer mm-hmm. to live but this isn't the way we're currently living and maybe we could do something about that uh-huh. if we all like do it together. That, uh-huh. right? Because I feel like the values and, and ideals 
that libertarian socialism and anarchism, the things that they espouse are things that we feel inside of us, mm-hmm. deep mm-hmm. inside of us, yeah. are things that we don't need to be told. We're, we feel it. We don't Absolutely. need the theory. The theory is great to put words to it, but mm-hmm. we feel it. And, yeah. and people from um, rural areas where I've lived, people in more urban areas where I've lived, West Coast, Midwest, all of it, there is still that same deep feeling. And a lot of us have had a hard time putting a name to those feelings. Mm-hmm. And some people call those feelings libertarian socialism or feminist ethics or feminist philosophy or anarchism or any number of other things. And we bring our own little spin on it as the, from where we came from, Mm -hmm. from whatever theorist or teacher gave us those ideas on paper. Mm -hmm. But I feel like with libertarian socialism, you don't have to ask permission. Mm -hmm. You just check and make sure no one else is doing it. So you don't replicate the work. You just do it. Mm-hmm. And and that's what makes it so helpful. And DSA recognizes it and like helps us do that thing. Yeah, helping people radicalize. Radicalizing is awkward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot of yeah. uncomfortable yeah. situations. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, speaking my own my own personal experience, there have been some uh, real hiccups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some real like fall. Yeah. Let's let's just say falling on my face um, mm-hmm. is maybe a more accurate term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So within the last year, you know, a year ago, I was doing Bernie stuff. That's how I met you. Mm-hmm. And yep. then went to the conference. The we had a, con- that was quite a convention. The Philadelphia, the, con- yeah, the DNC the convention. The DNC, that was quite yeah. a thing. Uh, I didn't end up going to that convention, but seeing you and everyone else come back, like looking like they had the soul sucked out of their bodies <laughs> was, yeah. Well, um, but yeah, yeah. as far as, uh, as far as um, radicalization goes, for me personally, I mean, yeah, like like you, Catherine, I started out in the Bernie Sanders campaign. That's how I founded UO for University of Oregon for Bernie Sanders, which then after the primary became the University of Oregon Democratic Socialist chapter. Mm-hmm. As far as anarchism goes, like it, I, I think you've mentioned um, that it's so common for people to be like, not... I became an anarchist, but this is the point where I realized I was an anarchist. Exactly. Because I'm like, just a few months ago, mm-hmm. like, it was it was just a few months ago, this, this spring term, that I was, you know, reading, I googled Murray Bookchin, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just realized, oh, all these ideas about libertarian municipalism are... Just our ideas that I've already had, I just called it democracy. Right, like as, as a real <laughs> but, thing as opposed yeah. to some sort of like false representative mm-hmm. republic kind yeah. of deal. But as, as far as um, what the DSA specifically has to do with my radicalization, like I went from Bernie Sanders to socialist. You know, this whole Bernie Sanders campaign, I mean, I started in June 2015, like a month after he declared... Uh, so I had this whole year of seeing, you know, all the things that are wrong with capitalism and seeing these, you know, potential solutions to them. And, like, and it came along with this label of socialism that I decided to look into. But it wasn't until I actually looked into the DSA and looked into um, transitioning our Bernie Sanders group to become a DSA chapter when I actually like read the critical analysis of capitalism that goes along with the DSA work we do. Um, you know, we don't just say 
okay, these are all the problems that we're dealing with, and they kind of have these things in common, sort of. The DSA straight out, like, we, we just straight out say, all these problems have this one thing in common, capitalism. That's the problem, that's what we need to go for. And when I, the, when I got into organizing for DSA and I read the literature that came, uh, that was produced by our members that really explicitly just put all these pieces of the puzzle together, that really was what radicalized me when it, when, when, when I discovered the words to describe what I was thinking already. The piece of the puzzle really describes it well. Like, all the pieces were uh, floating around and they were there, they were distinct, but when they all came together, it made sense. But you're yeah. missing a piece, which is the anti-statism. Absolutely. So, well, I mean, I, I mean, like I mentioned, the state, as, uh, the, the anti-statism absolutely goes along with it because the state as, uh, the state as it is, exists today exists to protect property rights. It, it doesn't exist to protect property rights as much as it exists as a mechanism for capitalism. So they're this, yeah, absolutely. So That's they're what the, I meant. I mean, so like they're yeah. the, I mean, they're the same. They're this and oppression. Yeah. So like they're the same thing. So absolutely. you can't have you can't work within a state. System. Have you heard of Oshalon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, Rajab, so all, you, Rajab read, all the way. Rajab, yeah, so have you read Have you read The Democratic Confederalism? Not yet. It's on my He's, list of things to read. Yeah, it's good. Read it. Yeah. He, talks, he talks a lot about how it's not like the state causes problems of police repression or causes problems of oppression. It's that the state is the problem itself. Is that the state is yeah. defined by yeah. the stratification of money. The state itself is defined by... A monopoly on violence. The state itself is defined by all of these things. So then, that's Mm. sort of the hiccup point Mm -hmm. when it comes to. But I guess what you're doing is trying to move people away from that, though, because you're talking more about like you're talking about liberal libertarian municipalism. You're talking about that scene. So that's what I'm saying. This radicalization process is sort of like it's like this line away from that, and so you are already basically anti-statist. It's, well, what I was going to say is that part of that analysis of capitalism, part of that necessarily is anti-statism because the, as you said, capitalism and state and the and the capitalist state don't exist, you know, separately. They're part of the the same force essentially. And so what what I see as my work in the DSA, it's exactly what you talked about: building those organizing our communities to build these societal infrastructures that will ultimately end up replacing the, the, the capitalist state, while at the same time changing aspects of the current system so that, so that that transition is as soft as possible, so that we don't, you know, so that during that transition we can still make sure that people have health care. I agree with that. One of the we're talking about those two different types of revolution, right? The type where you starve it out. Yeah. So that type of revolution, which is the anarchic type of revolution, means withdrawing from the state. Yes. So, you know, 
it's just an interesting balance there because you want to make sure that people have everything mm -hmm. that we, they can possibly have within the existing systems mm -hmm. while, however, starving out that state mm -hmm. so that you can have yeah. the third power. But you can't do that. You can't starve out the state until you have something ready to replace it, mm -hmm. which Absolutely. is why we put so much emphasis on building these other power yeah. systems and like we need more help doing that mm -hmm. something Absolutely. that's great about people like you who are work who have the passion to work in the most sorry boring very boring like writing straight up boring that kind of like patience and dedication mm -hmm. um we could really use some of that like the nitpicky like all the like mm -hmm. the amendments and all that stuff like mm -hmm. libertarian municipalism movements we super need you in those movements because mm -hmm. a lot of us who are further into anarchism are really action oriented mm -hmm. like we're I mean, you know organizing communities is hard yeah i mean there are definitely god bless our libertarian municipalists who are structure geeks and just like <laughs> dig in and are really 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 into this mm -hmm. stuff but a lot of a lot of anarchists trying to do the democratization on the ground we get real itchy to be doing direct action and we and it seems like the people that we need helping build these like well, we need these, to be these, municipi these muni yeah. municipalism systems are kind of being co-opted or still within the electoral system when like that kind of energy and that kind of dedication could mean so much to like our actual creating actual on the ground power within our own local neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. yeah. So well, it's, it can yeah. feel frustrating as an anarchist to see people with that prowess mm -hmm. putting that energy into electoral politics mm -hmm. of any kind. Well, so I like, I think like that like geeky level of um, policy and um, municipalism is what radicalized me. Funnily yeah. enough, like for me, like while, while we were discussing, I was trying to think of like what were like the catalysts for me personally in growing up. And number one, a cliche answer is motherhood, clearly. And a lot of people have, have said a lot of things about that. So I think... We can all read our favorite authors on that. Number two, the 1996 Telecommunications Act was something that was detrimental um, oh, in so many ways that completely like changed my mind on how uh, terrible the state can be. Right. So before that time, we had independent radio stations. We had rules about how many radio stations and media outlets companies could own. So in any one market, you couldn't have um, one company who owned more than the newspaper. Uh, they couldn't also own the TV and the radio and everything else. There were rules in place, a structure to prevent one voice from coming down, to prevent corruption, to allow for community voices, right? Well, after 1996 those regulations were gone. So that's when we started getting things like Clear Channel and other companies, Cumulus, um, Sinclair, all of them, that were able to come in and buy small, local TV news stations and radio stations. It was around that time that you saw a mass exodus of community <coughs> radio stations across the country, and they were replaced with formats like KISS, or Laser, or Jack, or Adult Contemporary, or whatever, oldies. And they all had the exact same feeling. So when you drove across the country, you may change the number on the dial, but it was all the same exact thing. 
And for a lot of us, radio plays a big plays or played a really big part in growing up in local things. You ride around in the car on your way to places, mm-hmm. getting that local voice. Mm-hmm. And you always knew it was someone that lived nearby and ha- and and they were taking your calls. But now they're coming from a voice track studio from across the country, and they're not <clears throat> thinking of those local voices. Or from across yeah, the, the ocean. The homogeneity is mm-hmm. uh, is part of statism as well, exactly. because you have, to create, you have to create exactly. an identity. Absolutely. Exactly. And so you have to, in order to create mm-hmm. this sort of like yeah. identity that brings, quote unquote, brings everybody together, you have to smash out and get rid of any sort of <clears throat> other diversity. Yep, the homogenization, the, yeah. the making people the same, right. uh, the Foucault idea of putting them into boxes and lining <laughs> them up, mm-hmm. all of that, like tear all that down. But that's exactly what that policy did. Um, it, it, if, if you see the long-lasting ramifications of that, uh, the devastation it's brought on small communities, on us as a culture <coughs> now, uh, the ability that Sinclair has to promote uh, right-wing agendas on local radio or on local TV stations because they have that nationwide power now instead of having it held municipally. I grew up in that kind of weird, wonky uh, radio world. So um, my dad is an amateur radio operator. Oh, cool. He didn't know it back then, but that was extraordinarily anarchist, right? (laughs) They did their own clandestine mutual aid, made sure people stayed safe. They did emergency radio services. They, I was in the car in like the middle of the night tornado spotting with my dad, right? Because they did, (laughs) there were no cell phones and that was what was done. We did mutual aid. We did municipal actions together, but it's all of these little policy things in addition to all of the other horrible things that are happening. But behind the scenes, there's all these little policy things that have chipped away at our life. Mm-hmm. So, I see, I love hearing when people are so passionate <laughs> about something. Because, like, that one issue, mm-hmm. that one policy change is something that you are super passionate about. And mm-hmm. I feel like what happens is people can't focus <clears throat> in or have a space to uh, approach and do the thing that they really do care about mm-hmm. when in the face of trying to do things like electing certain politicians mm-hmm. or whatever and you're mm-hmm. trying to like work within this larger framework of thinking as opposed to being like I care about this I'm going to mm-hmm. lead something on this that's why we, mm-hmm. we've been talking a lot more lately within my groups about not saying no leaders saying all leaders right you know right so that everybody is a leader so if you care passionately passionately about this one thing you can form a group, an affinity mm-hmm. group, and take action directly on exactly. that issue by doing, by making a radio station instead mm-hmm. of by trying to spend that energy getting somebody else to make the radio station, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think, like, in talking about um, community and structure and direct action yes. versus policy and, and, and a benefit of having that nationwide organization of DSA mm-hmm but still participating municipally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I think about something um, our chapter in New Orleans does. Um, they have a problem in New Orleans where p- the police are targeting um, uh, people of color, marginalized populations who have their brake lights out in their cars. Mm-hmm. And it's a really big problem there, a lot of targeting by the police. Yeah. Um, and so the DSA members there decided we have had enough. Um, 
so they just set up on the road, on the side of the road. They brought people together. They organized them together to be on the side of the road with brake lights. So you just stop, get the new brake light, and you go on your way. That's great. That's really cool. Right? And so um, is that a policy now? Can we wrap it into something? Is there a way? Could there be like a community fix-it place where you could just pop in, get your taillights and your headlights and your wipers fixed, you leave? And that's it. That's like its only niche little yeah. service, right? Mm-hmm. Could we have that sort of community thing through policy? Could that happen? Um, and here's an example of what we've already done with this um, brake light initiative, this brake light campaign. It's helping people do everyday things, building a new network and a new way in which we do it. But if you're already doing it, why do you mm-hmm. need policy? For the well, if we want to assume that we're not no longer going to have a state, or we're going to um, be anti-state, so we're going to have something to replace what we currently have, right? Would probably, in thinking of municipalism, think of the structures in which that would happen. Um, so, when is it going to be open? Uh, where are we going to acquire the lights? Who's going to vote on or how is it, how are we going to make the mechanism, what is the mechanism of choice in which brake lights we purchase? And how do we have these services be accountable to the people that that are servicing? Mm -hmm. So there's many different ways in doing that kind of work, right? Uh, Yeah, I guess that was a semantics question. Because we're talking about how do you, how do you organize, how do you, how do you structure uh, decision making? What are your decision making processes right as opposed to when you say policy i think of right as in like governmental uh policy. right right you know and and it would help if we had a better way of even talking about it right well, we talk about praxis right it's the, it's the word or because praxis kind of combines it's the idea of like well what is what do you do in practice you know right right yeah. but taking it a step further and for lack of a better term institutionalizing it making it the um the go-to place, right? Mm-hmm. Not just setting up brake lights on the corner once a week. Right. Um, a place where you're guaranteed you can go. Mm-hmm. You still would need some kind of structures behind that. Mm-hmm. For example, is... if you organized a co-op around that idea. Mm-hmm. Or if someone, um, you know, there would still need, probably need to be someone sitting at the desk at right. the yeah. day. Right. right. It, it's, And those things are all, I think... Probably the wrong term, but those things are all enraptured in within policy. Um, so I, f- I feel like I do separate it from praxis because it's it's not quite the same to me. But so, but when you say policy, do you mean like is this going through like governmental structures at all? Is that what so, you're talking about, or because like because this sounds so, like it could mm-hmm. just be a personal mm-hmm. group project, you know? It could like, be just, just like a personal group project. project. So then. It completely would, but then we would ha- we would start to think of well, who is making those decisions? How do we decide when we have made a decision? And deciding things like consensus: um, do we want a hundred percent consensus, or are we satisfied with something less? Mm-hmm. Uh, within libertarian socialism, at the caucus level, um, we agreed on a seventy-five percent consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when we have an idea, when we have a vote, we vote. If it makes seventy five percent consensus, then it becomes our poli- it becomes a policy right. or part of the the structure in which we operate. Yeah. <laughs> but when and, you have you know when you when you and, start to have three four five people even uh-huh. you when you at least establish those boundaries from the beginning, yeah. Yeah. then there's then you have all of that freedom to work within the framework yeah. and just making sure that um, 
as issues come up, there's a, a mechanism in place to just mm-hmm. sort of deal with it, right? I think it's really great to hear you talk about trying to play with different ways of decision making and different ways of doing those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's why I would love more people to know about anarchism and anarchist mm-hmm. process because it feels to me a lot of the time like people are trying to reinvent the wheel. Right. Like anarchists have been doing this for a long time right. and they exactly. don't know how it works pretty mm-hmm. good at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people are starting to be like you say, you feel it, like you feel it, these are the right ways mm-hmm. to do yeah. things. It's more mm-hmm. democratic to get as close to consensus as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, to direct have make sure democracy. direct democracy, mm-hmm. right? Hier- non hierarchical structures and everything f- just feels right. Mm-hmm. But then people sort of coming up with this but idea all on their own, it? all on their own, all over the place. So instead of being able to say, like, look, here you go. Like, I have a book I would love to give you. It's called Come Hell or High Water. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> is, uh, it's, mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, there's more. There's that's that's one book that's good. There's lots of great books on sort of anarchist praxis, de- non horizontal praxis. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, shoot, I'll have to. But for the for the episode, I'll go make a list and have it in my liner notes. Oh, great! There's some yeah. really great stuff. There's a whole section of literature in the Portland Assembly yeah. uh, website, PortlandAssembly.com. They have like mm-hmm. a great literature section on libertarian municipalism mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So. Because you I want have people to know. Yeah, Oshalan. Yeah. Is that on? If I don't know if it's on there. Maybe it is. Yeah, I think I looked it up. Anyway, yeah, that's on democratic confederalism. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mm-hmm. there are all of there's all this educational material and literature available to help people find out how to do these processes so it doesn't have to, to be like feelings. recreation. So you don't have so people aren't having to like recreate it exactly by themselves because yeah. this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is hard. It's always it's a good exercise, mm-hmm. but it's a lot easier. If, like somebody can like, help you. Like this is, is actually what already works. This doesn't really work. Is it, you know, it I is. think people have been afraid of the word anarchism, though, mm-hmm. so they don't want to. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I mean, that goes back to anarchists know how to do yeah. this. People are like, anarchists know how to organize. It's like yeah, we're like really good yeah. at it. Mm-hmm. Like, but I thought mm-hmm. you were like create anar- anarchy. Order, it's like, order well. out of <laughs> anarchy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean the yeah. I mean public distrust of of anarchists goes like back to 1886 um with with the haymarket affair but like that's but i think that something that uh we're really doing a better job is uh like through the through the creation of our own media um and you know um uh independent media is really gaining a foothold uh again which is fantastic um we're really allowing ourselves to break through that media barrier and actually uh get that information of what is anarchy actually though mm-hmm. to the people and i think that's fantastic yeah one of the things one of the most revolutionary acts i think i talked to a lot of a lot of organizers is reading mm-hmm. is education mm-hmm. so the more radicalization is actually mm-hmm. pretty easy all it really is is education yeah, exactly i've found that yeah. the more that i know mm-hmm. the more that i read the more i've become like oh yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> also podcasts like right. what we're doing and I, and just like learning people's lived experiences yeah. and talking mm-hmm. about how those lived experiences have been shaped by yeah. capitalism or by, Absolutely. you know, like, like being a mother and how radicalizing that is. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then, um, what the opportunities there are within that, mm-hmm. um, um, how you raise your child to how you're going to be pregnant and uh, how all of those things change you. I mean, you can, I sort of lost what I was thinking there for a moment and I got all wrapped up in that idea of... I think it's really interesting. I feel like the main narrative is 
often the narrative is that having children or starting a family makes people more conservative. Mm-hmm. But you're saying having having had children made you more radical. Oh, for sure. actually the opposite. For sure. Well, we are poor. I'm, like, extraordinarily deeply, deeply poor. Um, and I was working full-time at a corporate job, and I was pregnant, and my daughter was three months early and was in the NICU for six weeks. Wow. And I couldn't work. And they don't help you. And they don't... There is no mutual aid in corporations. Mm-hmm. And not that I was expecting there to be, but... Um, it was very deeply felt. Um, learning how to be a mom from NICU nurses, um, that was one of the best opportunities I've ever had in my life, right? Because there was nothing wrong with her when she was born. Um, I had an infection, so she was born. So I didn't have a lot of worry about her situation. She was just really tiny, and she couldn't come home until she was four pounds. So I was lucky, actually, in that... Before I took her home, before um, in in a traditional birth, they would send you home after three days and just say goodbye. You're done. Here's some pamphlets. But what I got to have was a six week like intensive training, almost live in training on how to be a parent to a newborn, Um, taking temperatures, what to think of, things you'll never think of thinking of. Because these people are experts and have been doing it for so many years. And I was lucky enough to receive that. And seeing how like the, the traditional age babies were, I say, kicked out of the hospital so early um, was incredibly radicalizing. Because I think of how like clueless I was. I, had, I am an only child. I'd never held a baby before. Wow. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing. And to see them interact with her with their expertise and all coming together um, was fantastic. And in those times when the nurses are just standing and waiting, I talked to them about what I did. Um, We were able to mutually provide information to each other through that care. And, like, I learned that the nurse was a banjo player. And she (laughs) was, like just incredibly good at musical instruments and I play musical instruments. So then we started talking about that and then one thing leads to another, right? And the corporate structure doesn't work where they just kick you out and you're left to fend for yourself and figure out where your community community could possibly be instead of looking naturally around you and saying, this is my community no matter where you are. Yeah. Right. And that's, crazy radicalizing and like <laughs> like really empowering and like no one can tell us how to live our lives best except for the people who are living those lives mm-hmm. the right. further away you get from your own lived experience the less anybody else knows about it that's right and the less anyone cares about it yeah so like right now it's set up so that the people who know the least about the situation are the ones with the most power over it that's exactly makes right the exact opposite of sense exactly right and then they don't know Um, what's happening on the ground. So they rely on things like metrics and Excel spreadsheets. And they, um, so they make everything into an algorithm and turn everyone into a number. You see this a lot in call centers. Mm. Um, Call center workers are notorious for suffering from this. Um, Mm. They're held against these metrics because there's no way for people up at the top to see what's happening all day. So they conglomerate it into these numbers 
to give to people. And then that dehumanizes everyone in the process. Mm -hmm. Just at the very next step up. You're you're already a number and not a person. Um, So it makes it a lot easier to close factories, to shut down jobs, to stop caring. And, and treat it as a profit motive or a bottom line, mm-hmm. right? I think you actually have to, capitalism relies on dehumanization. Yes, oh, it is necessary. It, there's yeah. no way around it, absolutely. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter you have an owner and a worker, that owner will always have an antagonistic relationship with the worker. Yep. The whole point of capitalism mm-hmm. is that you are renting out your labor to someone and mm-hmm. you are doing labor that you have no control over and that you don't own. That there's, I mean, that um, your your creativity, you know, the thing about you that makes you human, does not lo- no longer belongs to you. Yeah, I mean, there's just a huge amount of wasted human potential oh, God. in the oh, current incredibly. system. Incredibly. I mean, how many people have had a shitty job where you just sit around all day or mm-hmm. stand around all day? Mm-hmm. People exactly. who are who are you know could be a brilliant mm-hmm. scientists or. Mm-hmm. brilliant artist mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. standing around all day wiping a counter every 10 minutes mm-hmm. you know yep or, exactly. or even if you're doing something you love but you you don't you inherently don't own the products of your labor i mean even if like for example i right now i'm uh working in a lab at the university of oregon and um the lab notebooks that i you know write down what i do in the experiments i can't take that home because legally that notebook belongs to the lab and not to me or if you're someone who really likes numbers and you want to get a good job that pays really well, you're probably going to end up having to work in capitalism under today's society, work mm-hmm. in a really, really bad, uh, detrimental to others job, like actuaries, right? We, um, we pay actuaries a lot of money, but they, um, because they figure out ways to put value on our lives in very fundamentally horrible ways. I think it's set up, we sort of dehumanize ourselves because we end up having to do yeah. things that are fundamentally That's against right. our own ethical. That's right. You know, because there is no yeah. ethical consumption yeah. under capitalism That's and right. we're forced to be mm-hmm. consuming all the time. And mm-hmm. then a lot of the jobs that we're forced we, into so that, so that we can consume and things when, that we would yeah. not be doing by choice, mm-hmm. and when know, we upholding go the, the system that's killing us. And when we go to get a job, we're going with the full knowledge that we are going, that the wage that we receive for the work we do is inherently necessarily for the system to work going to be less than the value of what we produce. Right, because we have to be making profit, profit for someone stealing, else. Is mm-hmm. stealing your labor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and it's really hard to get someone who lives in Ankeny, Iowa, that works for Blue Cross downtown in materials account payable to understand. How they contribute to that system. And or if why. you're living in McDowell County, West Virginia, and the only good paying job you have is coal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're, we get those people, it's activate, mm-hmm. educate, organize, right? Mm-hmm. So activate people being like, everything sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. it all yeah. suck i'm right. like yeah dude right. totally it sucks right. educate here's educate, what we can do here's about what it. we can do about it here's you know here's some solutions yeah. and then organize once people are activated and then educated then you can get people organized to like fix their lives mm-hmm. things suck here's what we can do about it and let's get together and do it exactly mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. so yeah. i feel like That's what we're um, all about yeah and i feel like all three of us here are all about that pathway 
of mm-hmm. getting people activated and educated to, you know, radicalize them. It's so funny that we mm-hmm. use the word radicalize when basically we're just saying, like, it can't, like, why is it radical to understand your world and want to make it a better place? Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Why yeah. does it have to be radical? But, like, the yeah. information yeah. that I've had, how mm-hmm. much I've had to dig in order to get actual information mm-hmm. that makes sense for our world mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that really uh, helped to radicalize me after becoming a mom and having a daughter is um, becoming a student again yeah. and taking uh, philosophy philosophy classes and political science classes, especially during the election when all we learn about are white men and what my, white men mm-hmm. seem to think about the world, yeah. right? And, and how it's radical that women would even have a voice. Yeah. And so like now, it, like, just say the word radical seems yeah. kind of rude, right? Like, <laughs> something, something like these are, these are fully reasonable thoughts. <laughs> and, and something that helped for me is uh, I, I watched this really great video by economist Dr. Richard Wolff. Um, and in the video, he just breaks down like the capitalist system at its very basic unit of production, the corporation. He talks about, okay... Who makes all the decisions? Who uh, and then what is profit? So who so who makes all the decisions? Who controls the profit? Who creates the profit? Oh, they're different people, and the those that create the profit don't have anything to say over. So like he breaks this down in simplest terms, mm-hmm. and that really was what helped like radicalize, quote unquote, radicalize me. Because mm-hmm. you know once I'm able to like clear all the smoke screens of ideology and of dogmatism just look at the damn thing at in basic simple terms and you see that it's an inherently undemocratic system controlled by a small minority yeah yeah and yeah yeah, it's so funny about my radicalization process is that i already was pretty radical Mm -hmm. and then i kind of got sucked back into electoral politics briefly and then I became a Quaker, <laughs> and then, Logical like, pretty Logical much immediately afterwards was like, man, I would love to punch Nazis, but wait a minute, am I allowed to do that? Like, <laughs> hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. Mm-hmm. And so it got really confusing because mm-hmm. then I had to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out how to reconcile uh-huh. what had been sort of a, at that moment, my most recent past was sort of a liberal sphere, mm-hmm. and then into a... Uh, spiritual place that was very, 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 like, most well-known for its pacifism, back into re-radicalizing because that's what made sense. It's like, I just had a very deep gut feeling that punching Nazis is a good idea, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) It's like, how do I, but everyone around me is telling me that that's not a good idea. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's super confusing. Mm -hmm. And like, well, that that information is hidden. my great grandparents. So, I mean, like, no, Mm -hmm. I'm going to punch them. Well, (laughs) I I think it kind of exposes what we've been talking, uh, like another big part of our platform, like in libertarian socialism, at Mm -hmm. least in the, well, everywhere, but in the DSA um, also is like radical transparency. Absolutely. But something that really Socialism as radical democracy. So what really goes along with radical transparency is the idea of disagreeing with people Mm -hmm. and that disagreement's okay and that having these kinds of conversations are okay. And um, Our diversity makes us stronger. Right. And so it is natural and good to have a disagreement. And so when someone says, no, 
we shouldn't punch Nazis and tries to infuse respectability politics onto this idea of even like guessing that Nazism is a bad thing somehow. Like it seems like what? people don't actually believe in fascism. That's what right. it feels like. They, like I don't, don't think like, they people do. People don't know what a, right. they, fa- like when we say fascist, like we literally do they, mean fascist. They think it's yes, just some nebulous word that's they used don't. as a generic insult in mm-hmm. politics, yeah, but like, doesn't actually they don't. mean anything. Right. It's like no, when like, we no, say fascist, mm-hmm. it has a textbook literal, definition. Like, literal fascist. Right. It, and so like, we're okay with disagreement. We're okay with saying, no, these people are bad. They are. They are trying to kill you. Why do we have to say that? These people endorse the mass extermination of my family and my community like I'm a first generation immigrant uh, first generation son of Jew- Russian Jewish immigrants so yeah they literally like the Nazi party of Germany literally came after my family came after my community and now these people endorse that and then also say that we let's do more of that so I'm like mm, no this is not like this is not protected under freedom of speech or whatever. This is incitement to violence and deserves no platform whatsoever. How you doing, man? It's rough. But, you know, we're the and honestly the the organizing work that we're doing and having um having comrades uh be able to um you know organize with you and be supportive um it really makes the world of a difference i mean if i if i wasn't taking part and like actually taking action against this and organizing people around this if i was still you know writing angry comments on facebook like this i wouldn't i I wouldn't be doing this okay (laughs) but thank you i really appreciate it well, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate Thank you both you. being here. Thanks. This Thank was, you so much. This was a lovely, this was a really good conversation. Absolutely. I think we got into some good stuff. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And if, well, I, I have been listening to your show, you know, since the beginning. <laughs> so, you know, it's great being on here. Yeah, you've been a good, big supporter, which is like, it's not easy I'm to I'm a fan. Start, it's not easy to start these kinds of things yeah. up. So thank you for your your support in that. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited because I see this book about pickling or uh, food <laughs> preservation down here. Yeah, we have the mics uh, stacked on like a big bunch of <laughs> yeah. books in the Radical Organizing <laughs> and Activist Research Center at the U of O. Yeah. And so there's like uh, a book on Voltaire. Um, right? Like, like um, I'm ready to get into some pickling for the people. Mm-hmm. Should have some rally pickles. So. That's that's a fantastic mm-hmm. to end on. Absolutely. <laughs> I think so. Rally yeah. pickles for all. Rally pickles for all. Okay, great. Thank cool. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.